You may be religious or you may not be religious. You may even be an atheist. But the statement is everyone worships something, even the atheists. Do you agree? Well, what this statement is claiming is that everyone has something or someone that they live for, that they strive for, that they centre their life around. Now, they trust it with their life. They love it with all their heart and they serve it with all their might. And the thing that we trust, the thing that we love and the thing that we serve, well, that's the thing we worship. That's the thing we consider worthy of all our life's attention. And so if we ask ourselves, what is it that we trust in life? What is it that we love? And what is it that we serve? Once we've worked that out, we've worked out what it is that we worship, what it is that we live for. And as we saw in that video, we can actually worship anything. Anything and everything. Can be religion, can be money, can be fun, can be success, can be power, can be science, can be knowledge, can be beauty, can be popularity, can be love, can even be the family. So why is it that people worship? Why is it that the people worship these things? Well, it's because these things are good things, aren't they? They are good things. They're, in a sense, things that give us satisfaction in life. They're things that give us significance. They're things that give us fulfilment, completeness. They're things that give us purpose and meaning in life. And so, for example, if I live for money, I get a sense of significance. I get a sense of worth from my money. The more I have, the more worthy I am. Or if I live for my beauty, I get a sense of satisfaction and I get a sense of fulfilment. Or if I live for my family, I get a sense of purpose. I, I, I know and I recognise that I'm here for something. But you see, the Bible talks about when good things like these things, like family and money and work and fun, when these things, which are good things, are made into the ultimate thing, when they're made into the absolute thing, the thing that captures all our heart, the thing that demands our complete allegiance, the thing that grabs hold of our life, and they're the things we worship, well, the Bible calls that idolatry. The Bible actually calls that an idol. An idol is a fake god. And you see, this statement is actually true. Everyone worships something, even if we don't know it, even if we don't recognise it, even if we don't want to admit it. But everyone worships something. But you see, this is not a new thing at all. It's not new. It's been going throughout human history since the very beginning. And in our passage today, let me encourage you to open up to Acts 17. In our passage, this is what we see. So let's look at Acts 17, verse 16. So verse 16. Paul was waiting, he was waiting for his friends in Athens and he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. You see, Paul was in Athens. Now in its glory days, it was glorious, marble everywhere. This is what it looks like today. The Acropolis. So it's um, a ruin, but in its glory day, it was the centre of classical studies of philosophy and, and literature in the ancient world. It was sort of the intellectual centre, Athens. And so Paul was there in that place and he was walking around this, this place 
And what did he see? Well, towards the south he was, would have seen the Parthenon. Towards the north he would have seen, a, seen another temple to Athena. Towards the east there was the temple to Rome and Augustus. Everywhere Paul looked there were statues and altars to these gods, these ancient Greek and Roman gods. Now the city was so filled with altars and statues and idols and temples that a Roman author, Petronius, he said this. He said it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. It was everywhere. So what were the people doing there in Athens in this story? Well, you expect them to be probably having sovlaki or kebabs, but probably wasn't invented yet. Look at verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. You see, Athens was the intellectual centre. They went there to discuss, to talk about philosophy, to talk about life. Perhaps it's a bit like the, the arts department at Melbourne University. What do they do in the arts department? They talk. They talk. Well, they don't do too much work. No, they do. They draw as well in the arts department, but they talk about philosophy. It was a bit like that. So Paul was there, they were talking, and he was talking as well. And he found himself debating with these philosophers. And they were fascinated to hear what Paul was teaching. It was a new teaching. They were fascinated with this person, Jesus Christ. And they were fascinated about this idea of the resurrection. And so what they did was they brought Paul to the Areopagus. And this is a picture of that place today. Now, this was a council where they questioned Paul and where Paul was able to present what he believed, who Jesus Christ was and is and what the resurrection was about. Now, in this picture, the plaque on your right, so you see that plaque there? That's got there inscribed in the Greek the whole sermon from Acts 17, Paul's sermon. So that's there today, that's a close-up and it's inscribed in the Greek. Anyway, this council, Paul was brought there, and this council, they were sort of responsible for the idols that were allowed to be worshipped in the city, and so they wanted to hear from Paul. What was it that he was speaking about? And so have a look at verse 22 with me. Paul stood up, he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And that was the case. They were very religious. They worshipped pretty much everything and anything. You see, that's because anything can in fact be turned into an idol. Anything can be turned into a god to be worshipped. And if you think about it, it's actually no different today. They worshipped all sorts of gods. They were gods for anything. And in a sense, it's really no different today. Anything can be made into an idol, into something we give our life to, to worship. Take, for example, I'll give you two. Take, for example, physical beauty. Physical appearance. It's a good thing, isn't it, to, to look good? It's not a bad thing. But you see, if it's made into the ultimate thing, the absolute thing, the thing where you find your significance, the thing where you find your identity, the thing in which we concentrate on and evaluate each other on by our looks, by our beauty, what you end up then is you end up worshipping a Greek goddess, Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty and love. You see, if that becomes the centre of your life, it's idolatry, just like the Greek god. Or money. Money is a useful thing. We need it to get through life, to live through life. But if money is made the ultimate thing, the absolute thing in which we centre our life on, 
I give my whole life to it, then you end up just like what they did, worshipping Pluto, the god of wealth. You see, anything and everything can be made into a god, into an idol. And so that's what happened there in Athens. Anything can be turned into a god. And that's why the great reformer, John Calvin, he said this. He said, our minds are a perpetual factory of idols. Our minds, whatever it thinks up of, we can worship. Our our mind just produces and produces idols and gods to worship. But you see, the thing is, with idols, they are idols. Idols mean they're, they're fake gods. And as Tim Keller, the Presbyterian minister in New York, he would call it counterfeit gods. They're fake. They're fake because they don't, they can't, and they won't satisfy. The things that we seek and strive for and live for in this world, they in the end will not satisfy. They will not fulfil. They will not complete us. Now I want you to think about that. If I find my significance from my money, if my money is where I find my worth, I trust it, I love it and I serve it, what happens if I lose it? What happens if I lose my money? I start to feel worthless, you see. I start to feel insignificant. I might even lose my will to live. You see, if it becomes your idol and you lose it, what do you have left? And in a sense, that's what we saw a couple of years back during the global financial crisis, during the great economic meltdown of 2008 and 2009. Now, there were many stories of people throughout the world who committed suicide because they lost it all. Their wealth was where they found their worth. Their wealth was where they found their significance in life. And so when they lost their wealth, they lost their life. And so there were stories, uh, CFO's chief financial officer, Freddie Mac, he was the uh, CFO of Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation in the US. He hanged himself in his basement. Another guy, a CEO of Sheldon Good, a leading US real estate company, he shot himself in his car. A Danish senior executive of HSBC Bank, he hanged himself inside the wardrobe of his hotel in London. You see, these guys, their worth was found in their money. Their significance in life was attached to their money. And so when they lost it, when they lost their idol, when they lost their God, they lost their will to live. Well, let's take another example. If I find my significance, my identity comes from my relationships, comes from love, comes from romance, that that is what I live for. I live for love. I live for romance. That's what I breathe for. But what happens if that is your God and you get dumped? You get dumped by your girlfriend or boyfriend. Or when your relationship goes sour, it just doesn't make it. Or when your marriage, it fails. Or when you just remain single. You see, if that is where we find our significance, if that is our God, If that is where we find our worth, when you lose it, you might lose your will to live. You see, anything can become an idol. And that's what happened with many, there are many stories, countless number of stories of people who commit suicide after a breakup or after a divorce. I remember even receiving a call myself from a guy 
who wanted to commit suicide just because he had a fight with his wife. Now, I thank God that that didn't happen. But you can see where when something is an idol, when something is a thing you trust, love and serve with your whole life, when you lose it, you lose your worth. You lose your identity. That God will not satisfy. Or another example. If my significance, my worth, comes from my looks, from my outward appearance, from my beauty, from my handsomeness, and that's where I find my identity. Now, this is a real issue for many people. That's where they think their identity lies, from how they look in the mirror. Now, what happens when you see someone who looks better? How do you feel? What happens when you get old? Or what happens when you get braces? What happens to your identity? You see, you start feeling empty. Start feeling that I might lose my life over this. And people have lost their life over how they look. If that is their God and their idol and they lose it, they lose their will to live. And this is why so many people, thousands of people around the world spend thousands of money in plastic surgery you know, to make themselves look like someone who they are not. So, for example, I, I remember watching a documentary in South Korea and in China. You have these wealthy young girls, young women, and they spend thousands of dollars on plastic surgery. Do you know who they want to look like, these Asians? They want to look more Western. And so they go into plastic surgery to get bigger eyes and to get pointier nose and some to get taller. They spend thousands because that is their God, that is their idol. They live for it, they strive for it. But what about this guy? He's a 33-year-old man. He spent, so it's on your right, he spent $100,000 on plastic surgery to look more like his idol, Justin Bieber. I'm not sure how good of a job the 100000 did, but you see, that was where he found his identity, where he found his worth, where he found his significance. And 100000 though it's a lot, didn't seem too much to him. So you see, if looks is where I derive my worth, if looks is where I derive my significance, then I'm in for a huge disappointment. If that is my God, if that is my idol, I'm in for a huge disappointment. You see, that God will not satisfy. But you see, everyone worships something. Every one of you worships something. It could be looks, it could be family, it could be car, it could be wealth, it could be anything. Whether they're the pagan gods of the ancient world or the gods of today. In the end, they can't, they don't and they won't satisfy. They won't fulfil and they won't complete us. And what we'll find in the end is that we're left disillusioned, we're left depressed, we're left disappointed, we're left empty and we're left lost. And so Tim Keller again, the, the Presbyterian minister in New York, he puts it this way. In ancient times... The deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. They still are. See, the gods of Rome and Greece, they were bloodthirsty, they were demanding. The gods of today still as demanding. If your god is money, it's going to demand your life, that you strive and you live for money. If your god is relationships, it's going to demand your life, that you live for love, live for romance, live for sex. You see, these gods will not satisfy because in the end they're counterfeit gods. 
Now, do you notice in this story, as we were looking through it and reading it before, do you notice what Paul noticed in Athens amongst all these gods and idols and statues and temples? What did he notice? Well, he noticed an altar to an unknown God. So I want you to look at verse 23 with me. Verse 23. Paul says, As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, isn't that interesting? Why would you write and inscribe an altar to an unknown God? You see, it was like an insurance policy. It's just to cover all the bases. You see, I'm worshipping the God of fertility so that I'll have kids. I'm worshipping the God of war so that I will win my battles and wars. I'll worship the God of wealth so that I'll gain riches. But just in case I left anyone out, I might as well worship this unknown God. And so that was what the Athenians were doing. Now what's interesting here is that the Greek word unknown is where we get the English word agnostic from. So the word unknown is where we get the word agnostic, the one who does not know. And I suspect that those today who claim to be atheists, who believe that there is no God, I suspect that many of them are in fact secret agnostics. And you see this often when disaster strikes, when a tragedy happens, the September 11 disaster, the tsunamis in 2004 in Asia, the tsunami in 2011 in Japan. When these disasters strike, people somehow, who have never prayed before, they somehow turn to God, we need to pray. Praying to this unknown God. And so what does Paul say? Verse 23. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. So Paul's saying, this God, who you're worshipping, you don't know this God, well I'm going to tell you who this God is. And he's not as you imagine at all. He's totally different to the gods of your city. The idols, the statues, the temples. Totally different to those. And so he points out four things about this unknown God. This unknown God is in fact the creator. He is the creator. Secondly, this unknown God is the sustainer, the one who sustains all life. Thirdly, this unknown God is the ruler, the true ruler of the universe. And finally, this unknown God is the judge, the one who will judge with justice. And so let's work through these four. Firstly, Paul points out that this unknown God, unlike their gods, you know, which are stuck there as statues in the temples, the unknown God is the creator, the one who made everything, whatever you see with your eyes, that was created by this God, the God who created everything. And so if God is the creator of everything, God cannot live in these temples that you built for your fake gods. You see, this God is bigger than that. And so in verse 24, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does does not live in temples built by hands. You see, this was what King Solomon, the great King Solomon, realised after he finished off building the temple in Jerusalem. He realised that, how is God going to fit in this? And so he says in 1 Kings, he says this, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. And so Paul was saying to the people of Athens, you see, your gods, they can fit in these temples, these man-made temples, but the real God, this unknown God, 
He cannot be contained by this. He's greater than that because he created all things. So that's the first thing. The second thing Paul points out is that this God is the sustainer, the one who sustains all life. Look at verse 25. He says, He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And so Paul's saying here, you see, the real God does not need you. The real God does not depend on you. He's not dependent on you to serve him, to feed him. You know, if you think about it, such a God who needs to be served by people, such a God who needs to be fed by people, is a pathetic God. He's a truly pathetic God. Now, I'm not sure if you've been to any Chinese restaurants. I've been to a few, or if you've been to Box Hill. You'll see around the places uh, these little red shrines in a corner somewhere. Little red shrines, you see them around and, and you'll see these incense and a plate of fruit. Sometime if they're a bit more fancy, a, a roast duck. You see, that's actually to serve, to feed their gods, to appease their gods. You see, if, if they don't do that, their gods will get angry. Their gods will get hungry. And so these gods depend on them feeding them. And so just notice it next time. And sometimes you notice the fruit's been there for so long I wouldn't even touch it, but, you know, why not feed the gods, right? And so Paul's saying here, it's pathetic, isn't it? A God that needs human hands to serve the God, to feed the God. But Paul's saying the real God, this unknown God whom you worship, this real God, he does not depend on you. Rather, he gives you your life. He gives you every breath you breathe. You depend on him, not the other way around. So that's the second thing. Thirdly, Paul points out that the true God is the ruler of all. You see, unlike your gods who just rule over little realms and little areas, so for example, Hades, the god of the underworld, or Poseidon, the god of the sea, or Helios, the god of the sun, they have limited authority, limited power. But Paul is saying the true God, the one who made everything, rules everything, rules entirely the whole universe. And he also rules over the affairs of the people. And so verse 26, have a look. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God rules everything. He decides where people live. He sets up the boundaries. And if God is indeed the ruler and creator, he can't fashion God out of gold. You can't make him out of silver. You can't make him out of stone. You see, God created us, created you in his image. We don't create God in our image or with what we can imagine with our minds. And so verse 29, this is what Paul is saying. Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. And so as spectacular and glorious Imagine what Athens would have been like. Statues everywhere, altars everywhere, temples everywhere. They would have been spectacular and glorious to look at. Paul's saying, as great as that is, as great as your craftsmanship is, you can't reduce God to something that's made by man. You can't reduce God and misrepresent God in that way. It's not only a misrepresentation, you see, it's actually offensive to God. And so what's Paul, what has Paul pointed out? God is creator, he's sustainer, and he's also the ruler. Finally, Paul points out that God is also the judge. You see, God is actually not pleased 
you know, the people of Athens, all these gods, God's actually not happy with all these things. They're all fake. You should be worshipping the true God. This is all fake. And so God is not pleased and God is not going to live with, with their ignorance any longer. God's not pleased with their ignorance of God and them ignoring God. And it's a way any parent would feel. See, I'm a father of three kids, love my kids, I provide them with all they have. Everything they have, I provide it for them. And Yvonne cooked it. But I provide it everything they have. Their clothes, their toys, their schooling, everything. But if my three kids were to each day not even look at me, not say hi, not say thank you, walk to the room each day, ignore me, give me the cold shoulder, I'm not going to be happy with that. That's their father. I love them dearly. I give them all they have. But just think about that in terms of God. How much more so with God? And so verse 30, God says, Paul says here, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That is, God is saying, don't continue worshipping these fake gods. They're idols. Turn back to me. Repent. Turn around and start worshipping the real and true God. He said, God will no longer overlook their ignorance. Rather, God says he will return and will judge with justice. You know how people often talk about there are two certainties in life? What are the two certainties? There is death and taxes. Well, you know what? From a Christian perspective, there are three certainties. There, there is death, there is taxes, you know, pay to, uh, give to Caesar, whatever is Caesar's. The third is that there is judgment. There will be judgment. All of us will stand before God in judgment. And so that is what Paul is saying here will happen. Look at verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. You see, Paul is saying, this God who you claim is unknown has in fact made himself known. He's made himself known by this man he has appointed. And who is this man? Well, we're given a clue here. It's the one who was raised from the dead. And so that is none other than Jesus Christ, God's very own son, raised from the dead, the one who was appointed as ruler and the one who rules the world today. And so Paul, to the intellectual crowd of Athens, he sort of smacks him down and says, your God, come on, your God, they're fake. Your God live in these temples built by your hands, built by your ancestors. You know what, the real God, he can't be contained by any of these temples. Your God needs you to serve them, to feed them. You know what, the real God is the one who gave you life, who gives you every breath you breathe now. And your God, you imagine these gods with your minds. You made these gods with your hands, but the real God made you. You don't go around making God. And so Paul's question to them, and really our question today, is the same. Who will you worship? Who do you worship? It's a question we must ask. Who do we worship? Because everyone worships something, remember? Everyone worships something. It could be the gods of the ancient Greeks and Romans. It could be the gods of today. No different, because in the end, they are fake. These gods cannot deliver. They cannot. They won't and they will not satisfy. 
We go on searching, but they will not satisfy us. They will not fulfil us. They will not complete us. They're bloodthirsty and they'll leave us feeling empty and lost. Because in the end, they're nothing less than made-up gods, counterfeit gods. But you see, so everyone, everyone in this world worships something. Like in that video, we were in fact made to worship just one. We do worship because we were made to worship, but we were made to worship just one. And that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who came that first Christmas to become a man, to be like us, to represent us, to live that perfect life, who died in our place and was raised from the dead. That is the one we were made to worship, the one who now lives and reigns from heaven. That is the one we were made to worship. And you see, when we do worship the one we were made to worship, when we give our life to Christ, when he's the one we love with all our heart, if he's the one we trust with all our life, if he's the one we serve with all our might, then that's being human. We were made to love him, to serve him, to trust him. And when we do that, we discover our significance in life. We discover our worth. We discover our identity. You see, when we give Christ the honour and worth he deserves, when he is the focus of our worship, then I come to discover that I'm actually more loved than I can ever believe. I come to discover that the Son of God would die for me. And so my identity now is tied to the Son of God. I am found in him as he is in me. And my life is worth living. My life is worth living because it's filled with meaning. I'm satisfied, I'm fulfilled, I'm complete because I'm living for the one I was made for. I'm living for the one I was made for. And so everybody worships something. You can't worship nothing. There is something in your heart that you worship even if we do not admit it. But now that the unknown God, the God in Athens of Acts 17, the unknown God has made himself known in the sending of his son that first Christmas. He's made himself clearly known. And he's the one we worship. And so my question to you tonight is, who do you worship with your, night, with your life? Search your heart and see who is it that you cling on, you strive for, you live for. Is it anyone and anything? Or is it, in fact, the one true God? Now, I know amongst us tonight, there will perhaps be those of you who are still thinking about Christianity, still trying to discover who this Jesus is. Well, let me urge you to come and speak to me because I would love you to know who you were made for and who you were made to worship. Let me pray.